0: All right, I'm excited about today's message. This morning is number one in the new Justified series. Justified, subtitled Lessons in Living Faith from Galatians. We're going to look at one of the letters of the Apostle Paul to the churches, plural. There were a number of them. Churches in the area of Galatia. Galatia was a region, not a city like Ephesus. So when we talk about the Ephesian church, we're talking about Located specifically in a city, the Galatian churches were spread out over a region, like we might say North East Arkansas. Okay? And so when we, when we look at the concept of justified, you can see the scales of balance here and the gavel. It is a judicial concept. It is a courtroom term. It is a legal term, which means that you have been set right. The words just, justified, justification are all related to the same root. The just are the individual or people who have been justified. Justification is the process. It's the noun that describes the process of being set right. The word righteous or righteousness is the exact same Greek word. So it is a judgment term. You go before the judgment seat of God and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, I am guilty in my own sin, but He has taken my place in my stead, and by faith I receive His finished work, and I'm pronounced justified. Everybody say justified. The Bible says in the book of Romans, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so peace is the result of my releasing faith because God initially and first of all gave me His grace. He gives me grace and He gave me the faith to give back to Him too. By the way, it's a gift from God as well. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, is what the King James says. And so you are justified. It is a moment in time. It is a snapshot. It's not hoping across your life to have enough good deeds that God will call you justified in the end. As a matter of fact, when you were born again, you were already pronounced justified in that moment. You're justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. The title of the message this morning is called Reformation 500, and I'll explain the reason why I've chosen that title for the message uh, today in just a moment. Let's get into our text and in your seat you will find a, a blank, I believe it's a 3 by 5 card, and a pen. And I want you to take up your 3 by 5 card and your pen. And we have two verses of scripture today that I want you to write. I'm going to be preaching for at least eight out of potentially nine weeks. And we, we may interrupt this because Pastor Ray texted me the other day and said, I really have a prophetic word for the church that the Lord has given me for this next stage of victory, and he said, if you can work me in sometime this fall, then work me in. So I'm, I'm trying to rework my nine weeks down to eight so I can let him come in and speak prophetically to us as we take this step in this next season to enter this next phase of ministry in, in occupying a new building out there on our paid-for 30 acres of property in Marion. I'm excited about that. So... These two verses of scripture I want you to to jot down, and don't start yet until I tell you exactly what to write, because I want to make it easier on you than you'd probably do on yourself. Every day, I left my dorm room in the fall of 1979 with a freshly written scripture on a three-by-five note card, and I committed to memory literally hundreds of verses of scripture throughout my college experience, because I didn't have an iPod, I didn't have an iPhone, I didn't have an iPad, I didn't have a laptop, there were no... Everything, everything that was computerized was the big, huge mammoth mainframe in the computer science building uh, at Arkansas State University. And anything that I did computer, I had to write a program on COBOL or RPG or whatever, some of the various computer languages, and we had to do them through cards, was through that data. And so I was using a three-by-five card every day and stuck it in my pocket and would memorize scripture. When you do that, you're you're absolutely creating a a reservoir for the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 12 says, with joy we will draw water from the wells of salvation. And when you're in a difficult season, God can drop the bucket down into your soul, out and down into your heart, and pull up fresh living water that is in your heart and remind you of scriptures that you have in the past committed to memory and quicken them, make them alive in you to cause faith to grow when you're in a difficult season, when you need guidance, when you need direction. And so this morning, I want us to read the text out loud, and then in just a second I'll tell you exactly what I want you to write. So let's get Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Find a screen and read out loud with me. Here we go. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the Scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Now, in order to really make it simple for you on this first challenge, because every week there will be a fresh card and a pen in your seat challenging you to write the scripture down. When you write it down, that's the first step toward logging it into your memory. But in order to make this one easy, we're just going to say that you already have one. You're going to leave with one under your belt already and didn't even know you knew it. Okay. This one, let me give it to you in the King James because this is the phrase that will be familiar to everyone. The King James says in Galatians 3.11, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. Now that's the phrase we've all heard before. Everybody say it again. The just shall live by faith. Now remember I told you just, justified, justification are all that same Greek word for righteousness. Well look in the newer translation here. This makes it easy because the New Living says, read the last two sentences with me. Here we go. It is through faith that a, there it is, just. That a righteous person has life. Okay. So. Galatians 3.11, in the one that everybody's heard all your life, out of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, this phrase became uh, part of a banner, just in the same way that the Civil Rights Movement, we saw people carrying the placard that says, I am a man. That was the banner cry of the Civil Rights Movement out of the sanitation workers' strike in 1968. I am a man. Interestingly enough, just this year, Have some of those gentlemen who retired and were part of that strike just now gotten their pensions? God forbid that we are that unjust in the South to withhold people what's due theirs for that long. But thank God everybody has their day. Come on, somebody give God some praise. Everybody say, the just shall live by faith. Say it again, the just shall live by faith. Where is it found? Galatians 3. 11. Okay. So take your pen and your card and write that line on that front of the card. The just shall live by what? Faith. By faith. The just shall live. Who shall live by faith? The okay. Where is it found? All right. You already have that one memorized right there. You've just committed to memory. The just shall live by faith. And you're going, okay, great. But I'm not just. I'm not righteous. Well, hang in there. I'm going to tell you how you can before the end of the service. How you can be made righteous in Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's your first one. That will be the whole series. We'll open up with all of this every week so it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. The just shall live by faith. Okay. Now let's grab the verse for our message today. We will have a memory verse from each of the six chapters. I'm going to preach nine messages. Uh, One and two, chapters one and two will have one message each. Chapter six will have one message. Three, four, and five will have two messages each because it's so content rich in those three chapters. So nine messages total, and we'll have one memory verse each day. Now, here is the, the one for today. It's a little bit longer, but now remember, you already have one under your belt. The just shall live by what? Where is it found? Great. So you're, you know, you're, you're, you're batting a 1,000 right now. You're at 100A plus is your grade in my class. Okay. So now here's our one for this week. You've got all week long to memorize this. Now, put it on your mirror. Stick a piece of tape behind it, ladies, when you're putting your makeup on. And say this. Brothers, when you're shaving your face, maybe put it on the sun visor in your car when you're stopped at a red light open the visor down and look up at it and read through it one time and think about it let's, this is the gospel encapsulated right here let's say it, here we go Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Read it one more time. Come on, here we go. Jesus gave His life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Now, when I memorize Scripture, I grab it a phrase at a time and I think about it logically. Jesus gave His life for our sins, but it wasn't a plan B. It wasn't, oh, well, things didn't work out with Israel, so I'm going to have to send Jesus to die for all these fools. Matter of fact, Revelation 13.8 says the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, so in the mind of God, he knew that Jesus would go and die in our stead for our sins. Look what it says, just as God our Father planned. This didn't take God by surprise. He didn't have to come up with a plan B and go, well, option A didn't work. Jesus gave His life for our sins just as God our Father had planned, or just as God our Father planned, okay? And for the reason, so that, or in order that, here we go, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. In order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. So take a second and get all that written down. Write it down on your card. Take it home with you this week. And at least once a day, please. I mean, there's no reason... Now you're going to check your phone 60, 70 times. Just check the card, a tenth of that. Give God a tithe and just check this five times during the day. Look at it. Jesus gave Himself for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Okay, That's the gospel right there. It's not exhaustive. There's more to the gospel than this, but this certainly is a really good start of what the gospel message is, the life-giving message of Jesus, all right? Now there's one thing that I want you to get this morning because Galatians chapter 1 is about getting the gospel right. Say that with me, get the gospel right. We've got to get it right because if we misunderstand the gospel, then we have confused the very message that has the ability to transform the lives of people dramatically more than anything else on the planet. One thing, the gospel is the life-giving message of the finished work of Jesus Christ that says He is King and Lord and He offers a whole new kind of life to the hearers now. Now, so much of southern Bible Belt Christianity is about a home in the sky and the sweet by and by. It's about fire insurance escaping hell and it's about everything being taken care of when you stand beside St. Peter at the pearly gates and will the Lord let me in and will I get in by the skin of my teeth and all the nonsensical anti-biblical or extra-biblical stuff that we talk about all the time. It's just not even in the Bible. And so I want you to see that this gospel, this this gift of eternal life is not something on the beautiful aisle of somewhere in the sweet by and by because so much of the time it's just about what's going to happen in the way out distant future, and we're left in the lurch not knowing that Jesus has come, that we might have life right now and more abundantly so that we could live a different quality and a different character and a different kind of life. Eternal life is not a long time, saints. Eternal life is no time at all. And eternal life is not quantity. Eternal life is quality of time. It's quality of life, rather, is what I meant to say. Quality of life right now. You don't get eternal life when you die and go to heaven. You get eternal life when you're born again into the kingdom of God. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, right now. Come on. So Jesus, the the, the gospel, the one thing is that the gospel is the life-giving message of the finished work of Jesus Christ that says He is King and Lord and He offers a whole new kind of life to the hearers now. Everybody say, now. All right the just shall live by faith you already memorized that galatians 3:11 that's the verse that rang out during the time of the protestant reformation 500 years ago it appears four times in the bible in the old testament minor prophet of habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 and three times in the new testament romans 1:17 galatians 3:11 hebrews 10:38 say it with me one more time the just shall live by by faith. Now, I want to jump in quickly and give you some historical context. How many of you heard of Martin Luther? Not Martin Luther King, senior or junior. Both of those men of God were named after Martin Luther of the 15th, 16th century. Martin Luther was a German monk, born into a somewhat well-to-do family, and was set to study law. He was born in 1483, died in 1546. Very dissatisfied, battling depression. Probably some real issues of maybe uh, what we would refer to as mental illness today in terms of battling depression. Everybody in the room probably does at some point or another. Uh, Whether it is actually physiological or it's just mood related, you've probably experienced just being very down and not being able to get up. And so Martin Luther is looking for fulfillment, he's looking for peace with God, and he's traveling along a path one night, I believe it's in the summer, and a thunderstorm comes up and strikes, a lightning bolt strikes a tree that's just within a few feet of the path that he's walking on. And if, if you have never been close to a lightning strike, let me tell you, it can change your life. I was a little boy my younger brother Dewey was with me and we were under the carport of our house at 300 Center 300 South Center where we grew up and uh, there's a den there now that's been filled in but it used to be a drive up under that before they put the the carport on the side and so mom and dad are both at work dad's at the farm mom's at the flower shop and Dewey and I are out there and I think it's a summer summer day and it's in the middle of the day and Thunderstorm comes up and we're standing out there just kind of watching it. It's pouring down rain. It's lightning like crazy. And lightning strikes a redbud tree that's probably about 40 feet from where Dewey and I are standing. And I'm going to tell you, the hair, we were so close to the redbud tree where the lightning struck and you heard it pop and there was pop and tingle all over us. Hair on arms and head and neck stood up. And you could just feel it just that, you know, 40, 40 feet away or so. From where we maybe it wasn't even that far, maybe maybe say 30. And so just being that close to it, it was terrifying. And if you can imagine what it was like for the tree to strike or the tree to be struck by the lightning bolt and for it to crack and pop and fall down across the path, Martin Luther, who is at this point studying law and not yet a monk, falls down on his knees and cries out to St. Anne and says, St. Anne, save me. And he makes a vow in that moment. He verbally states, oh, if you will save me and protect me. He's just filled with all kinds of fear. He says, if you will protect me and get me through this night, I, I promise to, be, I vow to become a monk. And so he left the study of the law and he went into the monastery. He's a young man at this point, probably early 20s, I think. And he studies for years in the monastery, and he's involved in all kinds of ascetic practices, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, which is basically the idea that you can um, sort of, I hate to use the word torture, but that's the concept ultimately that it comes to, with extreme fasting, uh, wearing hair shirts, um, you know, wallowing in ashes and dust, Um The hair shirts were to prick his skin and remind him to pray. And so he was praying for hours every day trying to earn his way, trying to have the works that he did outweigh the the sin that was in his life and trying to get favor from God. And so he's studying theology, he's studying scripture, he's reading through the Bible, he's learned by this point in the monastery and through Seminary and through theological training to even speak the original languages. He's speaking the Hebrew of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He's speaking or he's reading the Greek and the Aramaic of the New Testament. And so he's reading through all of this and he's crying out to God and he's fasting. He's wearing his hair shirts. He's doing all kinds of stuff that is on the border of torture and mutilation, just trying to bring his flesh under subjection, hoping to get favor and win salvation, finally get enough righteousness on his own that he could win salvation. And God sort of, in the middle of all of that confusion and nonsense, bad theology, just sort of pulls back the dark clouds of confusion and shines a light and beams revelation down into Martin Luther's heart and he starts to burn with this phrase, the just shall live by faith. And he's part of a corrupt church system, where where priests are basically have this at this point become very wealthy, and they are part of the the three estates in terms of the votes of the various nation states and the societies across Western and Central Europe. It was it was basically the nobility and the clergy, and then the peasant class, and that's kind of their congress. They had. Three votes, and it was the voice of the peasants and the voice of the nobility and the clergy. And the nobility and the clergy always voted together to not pay taxes, and they put all the taxes on the back of the poverty-stricken peasants. And so the Reformation was going to become a time that would challenge the civil government structures. It would challenge the authority of the church. The Reformation would be a time where we would return to the Bible and see that God created three spheres of authority that that might slightly overlap a little bit but that really were supposed to be three distinct and separate spheres of authority. The very first sphere of authority that God gives us is the home and family. As a parent, it is your divine right to make the decision how you will train your children and raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, the kind of education that you're going to give them, the morality that you will teach them, the provision that you will grant to them, the the, the way that you raise them up to treat and train train them to be responsible, uh, caring, compassionate, kind and hard-working citizens of the society in which you live. So God invests the most authority in you as a mom and dad, as parents. Your home is a critical sphere of authority that is, is charged with a mission to advance the kingdom of God into your, the lives of your children and the next generation. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. There are two other spheres. There's the sphere of civil authority. Romans 13 talks about God places those in authority over us and that they are the servant of the Lord, whether it's a communist state or a democratic state or a republic, the way the United States is, government by law. In this point of history, there is none of that. We are are embroiled under the the whims of kings who are drunk on the principle that is called the divine right of kings. Kings were sovereign. Queens are monarchs basically had final authority and it wasn't that they would consult a law in order to govern righteously. The word of the king was law and in the period of time it's what we would say rex lex. Rex is the Latin word for king or regal or noble and so the king would speak and pronounce a proclamation or a judgment and his word was law. The Reformation comes and turns that upside down and we rediscover the law of God and the phrase from then on becomes Lex Rex. The law of God is king. Have you heard what I'm saying? This is my favorite time of history when I teach world civilization uh, because it's just alive with the presence of God. Martin Luther is an ordinary dude. Who is struggling trying to find the favor of God? And in the middle of all of this, of just hours a day praying and doing without food, and fasts himself down into a little emaciated monk. Now, later on, you see that he kind of really enjoys the grace and favor of God in his beer and his wine and all of his eating, and he gets a little bit rotund. And, uh, and I'm not throwing any stones at my brother for that, it's because, you know, we all have issues we have to battle. Somebody say, Amen and uh, he realizes along the way that it's the favor of God that is given to us as a gift, that you don't earn it, you don't work for it, you don't deserve it, but God in His grace chooses to give it to you because of His love for you. Matter of fact, before you were ever born, He marked you out before the foundation of the world and chose to set His love on you. Come on somebody, are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? All right. So Martin stands up against a corrupt church because the third sphere of authority is the church, home and family, civil government, and the church. And there is no distinction or separation of powers during this divine right of kings period. It's basically the Pope from Rome is calling on the shots. He's moving the chess pieces around the board and he's blessing marriages that he feel like, feels like will most benefit the Holy Roman Empire. And he's marrying the houses across back and forth, literally where there's so much intermarriage between all those cousins. It's wonderful. I mean, it's a wonder they didn't produce some really problem situations. And sometimes they did because they were just so inbred. And it was just this idea that there was this noble group that had the right from God, blessed to be able to rule everybody else. And from the Reformation forward, everybody began to question authority. Now, not just in a, in, just for the questioning sake, but in light of the Word of God. They would go to the Word first and see what it said. And, and Martin realized that the people of God were going to have to hear the gospel, hear it clearly and understand it for their lives to be changed and transformed and for the societies in which they were living to become righteous and just before God. And so Martin saw prophetically the problem that was going on. Every little village had one copy of the Bible and it was chained to the pulpit in that community. The people were illiterate. They couldn't read. And the services that were held in the particular local Roman Catholic churches were all conducted in Latin. So the priest was speaking a language the people didn't even understand. And the only thing they really did grasp was the sharing of that bread and that wine. That was the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. And in that moment they at least had a temporary sense of understanding of Jesus dying for their sins. But it was clouded with a whole set of confusing ideas that you had to, along with your faith, work in order to please God and gain God's grace and God's favor. And the Catholic religion has kind of an intermediary place that is not found in scripture I don't want to be offensive to anybody who may be visiting, who may come from a Roman Catholic background but the concept of purgatory is, is extra biblical, it's not in the Bible it's Catholic tradition and so it basically says that you're not bad enough to go to hell not good enough to go to heaven and so for a couple thousand years we'll whip you real good until you can finally get to heaven or you, you, you don't endure it so you got to go to hell and we'll make the decision there in that spot for you And um, basically, the Pope wanted to get St. Peter's Basilica finished. He wanted to build it. And so, in order to do some fundraising, he sends an evangelist out into the countrysides of the various nation states that are now developing in history. And all of the tribes of different areas are coming together uh, and becoming France, and becoming Spain, and becoming England, and all these, and becoming Germany. It used to just be kind of a loose region of tribes and every every region had its own king. And so now they're beginning to rise up kind of based on their common language and history together and nation states are being formed and the Pope is very much interested in maintaining power. He wants to finish St. Peter's Basilica so John Tetzel goes out in the community as an evangelist for the Roman Catholic Church and he begins to preach the gospel of indulgences. Indulgences were basically salvation for sale. And as a matter of fact, there's a little ditty, and it's, I used the word correctly because it was a little sing-songy thing that he said, and it's translated correctly. You can Google this and look it up. This is historically accurate. He said, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so it is the idea that if Uncle Jerry, who was basically a pervert, uh, you want to get him out of purgatory? Forgive me, I, maybe that's too plain. But let's make Uncle Jerry not so bad but you know maybe he was just a thief okay so you go in there and you've got a silver coin or a cold one or a gold one and you drop it into the coffer a cold one and a gold one okay I don't know where that came from. You drop it in the coffer and Tetzel would say every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory springs. Well, I want my Uncle Jerry to get out of Purgatory and go to heaven. So I start just scouring and I, 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 I sell some vegetables out of my farm and everything I can craft and do down at the market and I try to gather together a few coins while the revival's in town and I go pay for Uncle Jerry to get out of Purgatory. This infuriates Martin because he's beginning to see the reality of the corrupt church at this time that had lost ground on what the gospel was through the dark ages and he begins to just resonate just on fire because God had breathed into him the just shall live by faith and he realized that it's by faith that we come to God not based on our merit because none of us are worthy Jesus dies for a bunch of lowly, unjust, guilty sinners and He loves us so much that He says "If we'll just trust Him that the just will suffer for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly. And He took my place in my stead in order that He might rescue me from this evil world in which I live. And so Luther begins to preach the gospel, the real Bible gospel. And oddly enough, he sits down to begin to translate the Bible into the vernacular of the people, the the common Germanic language. And you know it's just like God. All of a sudden here comes this dude called Gutenberg who has a vision of a printing press. And about the time that that Luther finishes the Bible in German, he, he gets introduced to Gutenberg and guess what? The first big book that Gutenberg printed, what it was? The Holy Bible. And it began to go out on masse and copies all over the German towns and villages and people started to learn to read. And Luther started preaching the mass, the, the, the message that was there at their service in German instead of in Latin. The people start hearing the gospel. And guess what happens? When they start hearing, they're transformed. Because what, is, what does the Bible tell us that hearing does? Faith comes by? And hearing by the? Word of God. And so the, he preaches in a language they can understand. He prints a Bible in a, and gives them a copy they can take home and they start to read it and their lives start to change and revival breaks out. And this is what my cry is for America, that we don't just have... First of all, the church needs a Bible revival because we, are, we can read, but we're biblically illiterate. We don't know what the Bible says. And so we've been duped into deceived into this... <coughs> <coughs> nonsensical, divisive state of, of, of hard-line far-left Democrats and hardline far-right Republicans and we, we square off. And I'm going to tell you in this day, in this spirit of division that I don't believe it's from God. I believe this is when real Christians ought to be standing in line and building bridges and not drawing lines of division. We will be in this next 25 years, I believe, a people that will be recognized in the face of this extreme polarization of politics that true Bible believing Christians will arise with a third alternative, and it's called the Kingdom of God. Both sides quote Jesus and claim they have a handle on him, and guess what? Jesus is neither. But Jesus will sound sometimes like a Democrat, and he'll sound sometimes like a Republican. And how many of you know if if our heart and our affinity is toward him first and we rise up and don't lose our prophetic voice to speak as the church to the sphere of authority of civil government and speak prophetically, speak to power, speak to corruption and and, and speak to the family and the, the individuals that are sitting here and how you raise your children and comfort you and challenge you at the same time. Not just comfort for the sake of making you feel good but, but ma- making you know that you can find peace and grace in God but also challenge you to stand up in faith and begin to walk in the, the principles of the kingdom of God. Come on somebody say amen. And so we're called to, to, to live and abide and influence all three but those spheres are not supposed to one take over the other. Now, too many times, God forbid, when a family will not take their rightful place in terms of governing children, then the state has to step in or the church has to come alongside and minister to and help. It's just many times the, the, the overindulgence of one of the spheres happens because another one is not doing their rightful place or taking their rightful responsibility. Don't shout me down. That's good preaching right there. Wow. Man, I get lost. Where is the time? See, I hadn't even looked at my notes. All right, let's, let's, let's move quickly. Help me, Holy Ghost. Y'all get anything out of this? All right. Just hang with me just for a few. I'll, uh, I'll put it in turbo drive here. Paul, 2,000 years ago, is fighting the same spirit, except it's not salvation for sale. It is Judaizers that have crept in that have told the people if you're going to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew first and you have to get circumcised. So it's the same spirit of faith plus this work. Faith plus circumcision for Paul, which he's battling against that idea. It's just faith alone. Everybody say faith alone. In in Martin Luther's day, it was faith plus the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was a coin in the coffer to buy salvation, to buy an indulgence. And the, the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation is this concept of justification by faith. But it's not just justification by faith because everybody believes that. It's justification by faith alone. Everybody say faith alone. All right, right. Let's. Um, the gospel is the life-giving message of the finished work of Jesus Christ that says He is King and Lord and He offers a whole new kind of life to the hearers now. Let me get my scriptural context. Galatians 1. Now, I want to hit this quickly. So just follow along. Letters from Paul and Apostle. He says, I wasn't appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. He says, all the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the what? Churches, plural. So it's not just one church. It's not the church at Philippi that was a city. It's not just the church at Ephesus was a city, but Galatia was a region. It would be like him writing a letter and saying to the churches of northeast Arkansas. Okay, so Galatia is modern day Turkey. Okay. Asia Minor, as it's called in the Bible, Bithynia, Pontus, Syria, Cilicia. You'll see some of these names mentioned later on in the text. Verse 3, May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Everybody say grace and peace. Every letter of Paul will always start with grace and peace. Grace is God's ability. Peace is the effect after that ability has worked in your life. Grace is not an excuse to stay in sin. Grace is the power of God to get you set free from your sin. Come on, somebody. Peace is what happens when you start letting that grace work in your life. You have peace with God. You have peace in your heart. That's what the world's strung out looking for right now, trying to find happiness, and really what they want is peace. They want to have a peace in their soul. Jesus, here's the gospel encapsulated right here. Jesus gave His life for our sins, just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. That's your memory verse this week. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Let me get verse 6 through 10. I am shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to Himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You're following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one that we preached to you. I say again, what we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but if God, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Now, I just want to tell you, you know, we're not worried today about demands of being circumcised. And all the brothers in the room said, thank you, Jesus. I didn't get a laugh the first service. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> It's not about selling salvation. Everybody say, thank you, Jesus. But you know what today is? This same thing has bearing an application for us in 2017. It's just that when we take the word gospel and we put any adjective identifier in front of it, it ceases to be the true gospel, whether it's the social gospel or whether the social justice gospel or whether it's the civil rights gospel or whether it's the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, I could go on and on and on and just give you the flavors of what have been identified in the 20th century. And let me just say that every one of those things I mentioned are godly things. We want good civil rights. The Bible teaches prosperity. The Bible teaches healing and it teaches that He will prosper you and bless you. But, and the gospel includes all of those. But when we start to twist toward one side and redefine the gospel by modifying it with an adjective and saying we believe the prosperity gospel, then we've just twisted the gospel into a form that is other than what Jesus gave us. Somebody say amen. And it's so easy. I don't want to be offensive to anybody, whether you're from a Roman Catholic background or you come from any of the other, uh, sometimes what we might call Christian sects, S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X, S-E-C-T-S, the the, uh, sectarian groups which basically think they're the only ones going to heaven. I, I sometimes wonder what my Mormon brothers and sisters do with this passage. Because Paul basically says, I don't care if an angel shows up and gives you another gospel. Let him be accursed. And the whole thing with the Mormons was that Joseph Smith had an angelic visitation with an angel named Moroni and showed him some plates that he dug up that nobody else has ever had a chance to look at with a set of glasses that nobody else has ever had a chance to see. And I'm not trying to be offensive today, but anybody with a right mind and open to the Bible would have to say, wait a minute, I've got to question this or whether it's Dad Russell's revelation as the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Are you all hearing me this morning? First of all, if you're ever in a group that tells you they're the only ones going to heaven, you better get out of there and run fast. I don't care if it's United Pentecostal or if it's Church of Christ. And all of those have a tendency to tell you they're the only ones going to heaven. That's a sectarian spirit. We took communion this morning and there are brothers and sisters out of every nation, tribe and tongue, black and white, red and yellow, Catholic and Protestant and Methodist and Baptist and Pentecostal and Presbyterian and Church of Christ. And even folks in those groups that I mentioned that God is sovereignly saved. You know, God didn't save any of us because our theology was right. He saved us because He loved us. Come on, somebody. You know what, you can even hear the gospel in confusion and God can get a seed of His word in there in you and you cry out to God in desperation and it's His work that does it anyway. It isn't make making sure you understand all your theology in a right row. Come on somebody. Yeah. He sent this letter and there was conflict and controversy because the Judaizers are coming in and telling all the people, you know what, what Paul's preaching to you is not right. You've got to become a Jew first. You've got to be circumcised brothers and then you can become a Christian. And Paul was standing up in utter defiance to that. Martin Luther was standing up in utter defiance to the tradition of the church that had been put on the backs of the people and had nothing to do with God's word, the Bible. And revival breaks out which is not just the inspiration of the Spirit of God among the church, but Reformation begins to take place where a culture gets changed and transformed because the people are so alive with the life of God and they're living it. They're not just talking about it, but they're living it Monday through Saturday and worshiping God on Sunday. Somebody say amen. Amen. Let's get Paul's context. I'm going to be just, just a few minutes over, so bear with me. Galatians 1, my big last point here. Paul's message comes from Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, in verse 11, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source. No one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Verse 13, you know what what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. Now, I'm going to say something right now that I know right now at this point will probably offend somebody, but if you think about it, this is the honest to God truth. When you relate what Paul was doing to today in which we live, Paul was nothing more than a Jewish terrorist. Think about it. Think about radical Islam folks strapping bombs to themselves, walking into public places and killing folks that had nothing to do with what these people are trying to do trying to do. Paul was on the road to Damascus with a pocket full of warrants for Christians, those that were in what was called The Way, capital W, The Way, that is they believed in the resurrected Jesus Christ as Lord and Paul thinks he's doing God a favor and he's excited about it. He is killing Christians. He's a terrorist. There's no other way to describe him and how many of you know if God can take a terrorist and intervene in his life and turn him to where he literally becomes the the, the architect of Christianity and writes two-thirds of the New Testament. How many of you know there's nobody in the room that's so far gone from God and your sin that God can't reach you and transform your life? If God can take a Jewish terrorist who is killing Christians and make him become the mouthpiece and the author of all these amazing letters that literally form Christianity for the next 2,000 years, God can certainly deal with the mess in your life. Somebody say amen. He says, I was far ahead of my fellow Jews and my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Basically, he was radicalized. He was a hyper-fundamentalist, thinking he's doing God a favor by killing Christians. He says, now look at verses 15 and 16. This is a verse, two verses I memorized my first semester in college. In Arkansas State, in the fall of 1979, I wrote these two on the back of a card one day and walked out. matter of fact, I'll quote it in King James for you. It says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. This is hit, hit here in the NLT. But even before I was born, King James' is kind of dramatic way, When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know, when you get separated from your mother's womb, either you're born dead or alive. And if you're born alive, the first thing you do is "Ah!" suck air and you let out a primal cry because you've just entered a whole dimension of life that you've never known before. And I think the same thing happens in the spirit When God awakens you and blows His breath across your dead soul and you come alive and you say, Jesus, save me, I trust you. That's your primal cry of your new birth. He's just breathed breath into your lungs and you're saying, Jesus, save me, I trust you. Hallelujah. So just like a baby cries because a midwife or a doctor slaps him or her on the backside and wah! The cry is a presence of life. Some of you are here this morning and there's a cry of your heart that's wanting to come out. And Before the end of this service, I'm going to give you a chance where you can let that cry, that primal cry out to God and say, God, take my life and the mess I've made it. It'll be at the entrance into a whole new dimension. It's called the kingdom of God. It's called being born again. Come on, somebody put your hands together and give the Lord praise. I love it. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being. I did go up to Jerusalem to consult with those, the apostles, before I was. Instead, I went way into Arabia, and I later returned to the city of Damascus. Three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. Stayed with him for 15 days. I'm, I'm wrapping it up. The only other apostle I met at the time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I'm writing to you is not a lie. After that I v- the visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. And still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. He still had the reputation of being a Jewish terrorist. All they knew, look at this, read it out loud with me, here we go. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to. Last verse, last verse and let me finish. Read it out loud together. And they praise God because of me. How many of you know when you meet Jesus and when He by inspiration breathes His breath of life into you and you let out your primal cry and say Jesus save me I trust you and you know that you're now born into the kingdom of God and you have a whole new kind of life motivated by a whole new set of desires the memories of an old life that you have to begin to deal with, but now a new motivation and a new spirit and a new creation, a new life that is on the inside of you and motivating you to a whole new kind of way of living. You know what? When people can say, wait wait a minute, what, Mike Smith that I went to high school with, are you, are you serious? Why well, He was trying to get drunk and tried to learn how to cuss, never, <laughs> never had cussed when he was a kid, always was a church boy. And he was just, I don't know if he was at a place where he was just mad at God. He tried, tried to smoke a little pot and just, just, just didn't work for him. Am I helping somebody in the room this morning? Come on, come on. Some of you, God saves you from the, from, from the gutter. And some of us, God saves us from the church pew. I'm going to tell you. See, just because just you were born in church, if you were born under the church pew, doesn't mean you're any more holy than anybody else. Because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. I'm desperately in need of Jesus. And I'm so grateful that He loved me so much in the middle of all of my confusion that He reached down. When it pleased God, before I was ever born, He marked me out and separated me from my mother's womb because He knew that He had a plan and a destiny and a call on my life. And I want to tell you, everybody in this room, under the sound of my voice, God knew you before you were born, before you were a glint in your daddy's eye. He marked you. He set His love upon you. Hallelujah. And he calls you with a purpose, maybe not to preach the gospel or write theology, but maybe just to take the gospel, to live a life of gratitude toward God and a life of a, of a kingdom businessman. Maybe the life of a, of a mom in a home that trains children to love Jesus. Maybe the life of a teacher who sacrifices her life and lays them down for children to be able to learn, to be able to read and to be literate and to, to give them hope in the midst of poverty. I don't know what... Your, your vocation is, but if you can start to see it with a glimpse of the hand of God on your life and a destiny and realize God marked you before you were born, you, you, you'll begin to live a different kind of life. You'll begin to see life through a whole different set of lenses. And they praise God because of me. Who's out there who needs to see? What is it D.L. Moody said, you know, of all the people, that they, you know, one man out of a hundred will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. Who's reading your life this week? Who's looking at your life? None of us are perfect, but thank God that we can, in the middle of all of our struggle, can get focused and we can say, God, through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. It is well. It is well with my soul. I've tried to preach you out of a little bit of a motivation of a historical hero of mine, Martin Luther. I've shown you from a biblical context of how Paul was wrestling the same spirit, a little bit of a different kind of it wasn't indulgences and coppers, coins in a coffer. But it was circumcision. Today, there's all kinds of things that will attempt to come and confuse you as to what the real gospel is. This morning, if you put that one verse right back up last time this morning as I finish Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. This is your memory verse this week. Read it out loud with me. Jesus gave His life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. We've seen it in history. We've seen it in Scripture. We've seen it in Paul's own life, whom God interrupted. I I believe that God's knocking on the doors of some hearts this morning, and you came into this service headed one way in your life, and God's going to send you out walking a totally different path. And it very simply comes when you just realize what God's already done for you. Jesus died 2,000 years ago and he hung on the cross and he saw your face. I don't know how that happens. I don't understand it. But God in his infinite mind saw down through the eons of time and he saw generations of people. And I believe he saw families and I I believe he saw couples and I believe he saw children born to those couples. And I believe he saw you. And I believe before you were born he set his love on you. It's not just a general dying for the world. I love everybody. No, I believe he's specific. I believe God, before the foundation of the world, marked your life. In the confusion, and the mess, the mountains you can't see past this morning, don't have the ability to see, and you're just saying it, trying to faith it, you're in a good place. Because you're ripe for God to show up and move in a powerful way. Just as our God, our Father, planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which We live. Recognize what God has done for you and respond in faith. The gospel is the life-giving message of the finished work of Jesus Christ that says He is King and Lord and He offers a whole new kind of life to the hearers right now. I'm thankful for the sweet by and by. It'll take care of itself. My baby girl wrote a song and it'll be her first release in about 60 days. It's called Evergreen. It's about Dawn. And she's basically saying, Would you wait for me? I have a race I have to run, Mama. And I want to see you more than anything. And she believes that Dawn is waiting on the other side to see us again. And then in the waiting, it's still waiting, it's pain. It's waiting to be reunited there are loved ones in every one of your lives that have gone before you I believe they're joined in prayer circles in heaven this morning praying for you right now everybody in the room has got a praying aunt or a praying granny or a praying granddad or a parent that's gone to be with the Lord and like an evergreen that never loses its leaves and never dies it's a picture of immortality like an evergreen that stands tall and strong. They're standing there and agreeing with Jesus, praying an intercession for you. And this morning is, the ball's in your court, it's in your hands. Will you respond and, and say, yes. And your primal cry and say, Jesus, I trust you. Save me. Lights are down. Heads are bowed.